and I would write sermons when I was on the hospital floors. And I would oh. sit in the nurse's station. Back then, we didn't have electronic medical records. Uh, we would write them on paper. So I would use hospital note paper and write my sermon. And I would sit in the nurse's station so I could you know, kind of listen and learn and hear what was going on. And my supervising doctor said, uh, that my attending physician, who was a hard, you know, hardcore scientist, came up to me and asked me what I was doing. And, and I said, oh, I'm working on my sermon. He said, you know, physicians are the priests of today. And he said this in kind of a, you know, kind of to nudge me or jab me. He said, people go to their physicians the way they used to go to their priest. Mm. And I think he kind of said it, you know, to be a little witty, a little sardonic and stuff. And I actually was a little offended by that. And obviously, since I'm telling you the story and it's been more than 26, seven years, 25 years, it really impacted me, that statement. But, you know, I think he's right in many respects. You know, we live in a world that is suspicious of organized religion. Um, I think, but people are still hurting and they go to their physician. People are skeptical of organized medicine, right? The, med the medical industry, There's, people are skeptical. So I wonder if people go to their physician because they're hurting and they want to feel better and then and then feel like that the, that physician didn't address their needs because medicine is not the solution to that spiritual pain or that suffering or that doubt or that anxiety and and it's important to go to your physician cuz maybe there is something wrong medically but i do think it's a lot to ask a physician mm. who went to medical school to to you know solve people's spiritual suffering Hey everyone and welcome to another episode of Going Out, Looking In, the podcast about the big questions of life, personal growth and spirituality. My name is Maxi, I'm your host and today we are diving into the waters of academia, of science, of medicine and spirituality, faith, religion, well-being burnout, and much more. You'll be thinking like, uh, how should that work? Well, you know me. I always get something up my sleeves, and this time, I went in a little bit of a different direction. So basically, how this conversation came to be is that I had this conversation with Dr. Lisa Miller on the podcast, right? About the science of spirituality, Columbia professor, New York Times bestselling author of The Awakened Brain. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that being said, I was just further during my trip in the US pondering the question of what is, what else is there in academia, in science around maybe proof or some sort of research around these deeper questions of life and the human experience and 
what better place to start looking than at the, you know, while in the US at the big universities. So we are talking what? But name comes to mind. Come on, guys. For me, it was Yale, for example, Princeton, Stanford, Harvard. And so I just did what I always do, which is be open and ask. And that's how this conversation came to life with Dr. Benjamin Doolittle from Yale School of Medicine. All right, now this, this whole introduction, the Yale School of Medicine, I got it right. This introduction is a little bit different because every time I am interviewing someone with a scientific background, I wanna make sure that I get it right. Right, I get. I want to get the all the accreditations and the Vita right, so that's why. Pardon me. Um, I, I'm gonna quickly read a little bit and a little excerpt of the Vita of Ben, so I don't. I make sure I don't miss out on anything. All right, ready. Ben Doolittle is the program director of the Combined Internal Medicine Pediatrics Residency Program. He's also the medical director of the faculty resident con. Continuity Clinic. His practice focuses on addiction, hepatitis C, HIV in primary care. His research interests explore the intersection of medicine and spirituality, wellness, and burnout. Ben is also an ordained minister holding an MDIV from Yale Divinity School and serves as a local urban congregation. Yeah. That's a mouthful, and you know when you when I when I saw I'm just looking at his photo, you know what, and then reading this I'm just like oh wow I gotta you know better, ooh, I gotta be prepared you know this is this is a big thing you know, but just by the reply of Ben and his spirit and watching him you know there's like a quite a big interview he did a couple of years ago for Yale with Sadhguru and some more materials that I found of him where it's just like, wow, this is a very, such a genuine guy, just like a very approachable person. And that's how the whole communication prior to the conversation went down. And then as soon as the call started, there was just like this instant connection. And so, yeah, it basically, it was an awesome conversation. And we really um, delved deep into a variety of topics such as you know really the the bones and the, the the structures of the scientific understanding behind well-being but also the <laughs> like the the benefits and the sort of like the antidote of a narrative behind organized religion and that there is a lot of value in this work of organized religion and the community that it provides. So we speak about that. We speak about the expectations that we oftentimes, subconsciously also maybe, carry into our visit at the local doctor. Our sort of agenda, our yeah expectation of what a conventional doctor should be 
should be healing and solving for us, right? And we, and Ben, as a physician himself, who has both feet on the ground and really like has been working for 30 years in that field, um, he really sort of put things a little bit in perspective. And that was for me very, very enriching, very, I learned a lot. And finally, I mean, that's just, I mean, I'm just still sort of speechless. He actually ended up inviting me to Yale um, to, to, to speak and share my experiences with some of his students, which is obviously still something I, I cannot really wrap my head around. But like these, is, these are just, you know, the, the, the wonderful things that come from, from having those kind of conversations and just being open, you know, being open to explore different avenues of, you know, these deeper things of the human experience. With all that being said, as always, beautiful takeaways I wish for you and yeah just fun you know life's supposed to be fun this journey. with this episode and Dr. Benjamin Doolittle all right so I'm always like I'm, I'm, I'm here in Mannheim I'm on a stand-up desk I'm grounded I'm, you know, this is always how I start into the episode. I like to just be present and, and be here with you. And I have my very own practices to arrive, you know, in a space, especially when it comes to a new space with new energies and people that I don't know or whatever. Um, so I feel like this would be a good point of entry for you. Like what I know you, you, you have, you know, you're, you're a preacher, you're a, a spiritual man, um, and you've been, you've been a, you know, devoted seeker, I would say. Um, and so I'm just curious what your, what your practice looks like. How do you start in a day? How do you ground yourself? Oh, Maxi, thank you so much for asking that question. Because a lot of times in these interviews, they say, what kind of, like, let's talk about your resume. Like, you're a blah, 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 like, professor, all that stuff. So you asked this really rich question because it's a, it's a joyful question. So here's how I start my day. And actually, I'll show you. So every day I wake up and I, I engage with uh, what I call my Renaissance journal. And I write at least three pages a day uh, in the morning. Now, this was not my idea. Uh, this came from Julia Cameron, a book called The Artist Way, which is easily maybe behind the Bible, right? Like number two or number three or number four. I mean, it is right up there. <laughs> and so Julia, so so my Renaissance journal and the 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 spirit behind that or the art behind that is one of um, introspection and creativity. And the idea is to is 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 to spark, I, I guess, to spark the artist within. Um, and it's the place where you put your doubts and your worries. Any academic idea starts in the Renaissance Journal. You know, like, oh, I have this idea, and then I just noodle it down in the paper. And then maybe it just sits there. But it's out in the world, right? Because it's on the page. It's not just locked in my head. So, uh, and the beautiful thing is that it's every single day. And I've only been doing this for maybe three and a half years, just before the pandemic started. And then of course the pandemic, uh, it became 
a really important discipline. But now it's this effortless, joyful practice. So that's the first thing. The second thing is um, I, I, I have a regular prayer meditation practice. And um, it's a combination. <laughs> it's a combination of very traditional uh, fixed prayer, you know, the divine office, the, the, the traditional Christian monastic office, like what a monk would say if they were in chapter for their, for their morning prayers. So it's that plus some silent like meditation, um, affirmation, uh, you know, deep breathing kind of stuff. And I find that um, so the, and, and the two sort of mixed together, I think, like the little bit of introspection and journaling and then this like prayerful practice. And, and, and I see it as, um, you know, if the, if the Renaissance journal is to awaken the mind um, and to connect me to myself in the world, and then the meditation prayer practice is to connect me to God, um, I discovered the divine office maybe 12 or 13 years ago. Again, I'm, I'm a middle-aged guy. I'm 55. So I feel like I've tried everything once and then it, sometimes it doesn't stick and you go back to it and so, it emerges, you know? So I like the divine office because uh, it's a great anchor in the world. And, and these traditions are, you know, thousands of years old. And I think the reason why they've stood the test of time is that even before we knew the science, I think these old monks knew something that this was a, a good way to start uh, the day. So that's how I start the day. Renaissance journal and some prayer and meditation. Mm, and I love the beautiful. question. It's like so yeah. it's a great question. <laughs> so how, how would you say does this practice inform what is then coming in your day, in your work, especially in your relationships? How does that translate to, to your life? Is there like a spillover? Um, that's a very thoughtful question as well. Is there a spillover? I wonder if, so this is one of those things that is part of the mystery of trying to engage in a spiritual life or, or having a rich inner life is that you don't really necessarily see your own life. You know, you're in your life. Um, but I feel like, or I believe the Renaissance journal has sparked uh, a really beautiful outpouring of creativity. Um, And, you know, my academic productivity as a professor has really increased with what I think have been some of my best ideas I've ever had. Um, so, uh, and I think it's helped my writing, which I, I really see as an art. Um, so there's like a outward skill piece to it, but more than that, it's like a creativity fire, I guess. You got to keep the embers going. Um, and the <laughs> Renaissance Journal does that. Now, this is like the inner prayer life practices. You know, 
I think it just makes me a happier person. Um, And I don't think there's anything more to say about that. You know, one of my kids said, hey, dad, you just never seem to worry. And I guess, I guess that's just true. I, you know, you, I'm, and I don't, um, so does prayer, you know, how does it spill over in the day? I guess, I mean, I wish I could pray more. I always feel like, Mm -hmm. Oh, I gotta go. You know, there's that. (laughs) I wish I could like really enjoy that side of life. I mean, I found, you know, it's not a chore, it's a joy. So I guess that's my answer. It's just, I feel so grateful to have this like anchor in the world or this temple of time. That, that wasn't my phrase, the temple in time. That, that was Abraham Heschel, the old, mm. the old rabbi activist. He said the Sabbath was a temple in time. And I think my morning ritual is like a temple in time that, that gives me the, this gift, this joy, this grace to start the day. Yeah. You know, like I think this is like the opportunity that I just want to take when speaking to people like yourselves and who are just, you know, on a worldly level, you are. Yeah. And that's what we've discussed in the, in a little tiny conversation we had prior to the recording is just like, you know, of course I could ask you so many questions around the pragmatic and tangible things of your career and that I can just, you know, put my finger on. But I feel like that the magic and the deep wisdom and the knowledge that is also something that is really valuable for for for, for us, you know, and for me now coming in touch with you in that way is is to be found in the in the more subtle realms. And so um and we you know we'll we, we i'm i'm super interested in going in 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 more sort of um in the more scientific avenues as well but um i just there is just you know being human it's just it's a yeah. wonderful thing isn't it and there's so much you know between heaven and earth yeah this is my this is the prayer book that i use all the time when i travel and then here's my Renaissance journal. <laughs> mm, like, wow, yeah. that's a big one. <laughs> oh, yeah. You got to have a big one because especially when you're on a triennial leave, you know, there's a lot to write about. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I wanted to ask you. So basically, when you say that it also informs your work in the sense of like that, you you know, your best um, insights and, and ideas were originally or were originated in in things you wrote down in the, in the Renaissance journal. So, um, where, where do you believe is that, that that's all coming from? Because it's coming from somewhere, doesn't it? Yes. Um, so this leads to my second point that is one of my beautiful spiritual practices that we were talking about before is, um, So where do these ideas come from? A good idea is really hard to come by. And I really believe that the way we get good ideas is through connection with different people and different ideas and different books. And 
and being outside of ourselves or outside of our discipline. So maybe 10 or 11 years ago, I started the discipline of the Renaissance conversation, <laughs> which is at least once a month, I reach out to somebody different from myself and have an open, curious conversation with that person. And, and then, and so if, if my meditation practice is to connect me to God and my Renaissance journal practice is to like look within, um, the Renaissance conversation practice is, is to connect with the world, especially people different from myself. And that, um, is such a gift because, um, I get exposed to so many ideas and we tend, um, maybe in our careers, we might, we tend to maybe go a little deeper in our career, but then we lose sight of, of the beautiful collaborations and connections across, um, across disciplines. And there's been some data behind this. So one of my favorite books about this was, was called the Medici effect. Uh, it was written by a Harvard business school professor. And, uh, and it, he described how the Medici effect, you know, Medici, uh, the Medici's were a, a banking family in Florence mm -hmm. and they helped finance the Renaissance, but really it wasn't just about the bankers. It was, he could have called it the Florence effect, I guess, but it was the fact that there were artists and musicians and philosophers and theologians and, you know, Michelangelo was there and Leonardo da Vinci was there and, and the Royal court, you know, the political system was set up to encourage this. So there were very different people around, uh, the table. And then it was one important reason, uh, why it was a fl flourishing of these new ideas. And so that book really influenced me. Um, and so, um, yeah, so that, that idea of, and, and then the other data that I appreciate so much is that, is that we can't wait for our muse to get a good idea. We have to always be exploring ideas and keep the, the, keep the field fertile for when a seed mm. might uh, land in the, in the field. Uh, and some of this is born from necessity. So one of my roles in the world is I'm a pastor of a terrific uh, congregation in New Haven. And, um, you know, when you have to preach every single Sunday, you have to come up with something to say every single Sunday. <laughs> and so it probably started with that 30 years ago, you know, of like, oh, what am I going to, what am I going to talk about this Sunday? Um, so, so the, where, I, where these ideas come from, I mean, there's a, it comes, I think, from social connection and introspection and ultimately gift, right? Like these ideas, they come from somewhere. They do seem to come from connection or hybridization, right? Like being around someone different from yourself um, or reading something that's outside of your field. That's the, I think that's the secret sauce in this. Mm. Right. That's, I think, a perfect segue into 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 your into your work and and the 
I don't know. And this is just like how I perceive it as somebody's looking at it from the outside. You know, your, your view might be different. It might be exactly the same. I don't know. We'll find out. But looking at it from the outside, it seems like you've been you've been courageous. You know, you've been like, okay, well, there's like things that seemingly don't have maybe, you know, apparently not have much in common. Maybe they do. Let's find out. Let's conduct some research around it. Okay. And let's <laughs> see where we where we get with that. So there, there's a lot of avenues that you that you that you went into and um you know on the podcast we we are just interested in in you know the the big questions of life like where do we come from where do we go why are we here what you know how does this all work and then we we turn to you know big theories and 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 and, and contemplative uh, modalities but then also religion and then we also end up right you know, being born for me as, a, as in Germany, we turn to Western medicine, you know, or like to medicine in general, Eastern or Western. And then we basically say, okay, well, I've read this book and they say to live a fulfilled, rich life inside and out, I need to do this. But then I go to my local doctor and they say I should do this, like, and I cannot really put them together. So I'm like interested in um in what was the first sort of like this this like spark of you that like inner because something clearly you know because you've you've done like hard things you know you you studied for years and you you know you conducted research and all that and it's you know the life of an academic it's not you know you got to be you you have you you got to have like some sort of inner motivation like an, an intrinsic drive so i'm interested in what that was for you um, that kept you going, and um, and then we can go into a little bit further into those different into those different avenues. But I'm more interested, first of all, to see what was that spark that led you into taking those courageous moves and say, you know, I want to find out about spirituality and religion and medicine. Yeah, thanks for calling me courageous. I don't see myself as courageous at all, actually. Not not oh, about right. this. This is just being a ordained minister and a physician is just. I think it's I, I I think it's just my vocation. I, I really do, and I just followed curiosity, and I enjoyed being a student for a long time. Sometimes when people say the word academic, um, you know, it, it implies that you know you sit behind a desk or something. And and actually, I've been a frontline physician, you know, in the clinics, in rough neighborhoods, on the wards, in the ED. I've been a a church pastor of you know, for 30 years. So, um, I think I'm, I'm on the ground, um, a lot actually. Mm, I, I wouldn't mm. I, I, I recognize that you could go to my, you know, face page at Yale and, and say, Oh, he's an academic, but actually a big part of my life is, is directly with, with people. Uh, I think that's important, right? Yeah. Uh, cause that's, um, yeah. So, um, so what was the spark? Um, I mean, I think, I, I really think there's a sense of vocation and this is just my vocation. I, I, I'm just gr glad that I listened to it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm glad that I discovered it because it's being a minister and a, and a physician is the right fit for me. It's funny when, when I was going through school uh, and I would talk to a physician and I would say, gosh, I think I really want to be a, a physician and a minister. 
and they said very good advice. They said, well, it's going to be, it's too much. You can't do it. You know, medicine is all consuming. It certainly, certainly is pretty consuming for sure. And then when I talked to, you know, my pastor back home, he's a, he was a lovely guy. He said, well, that's going to be hard. You know, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, the ministry is pretty consuming. So I don't, I don't think that's a great idea. Um, but you know, I, so I followed a sense of call, you know, I, I and, 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 uh, so far so good after 25, six, oh, I guess, when did I start medical school? 1994. Oh, almost 30 years, almost 30 years of doing medicine and, and, and religion. Let's see how it works out. <laughs> so far, so good. Mm. So, out of your experience, what kind of, um, what kind of, how how does one inform the other, um, and how does one maybe also contribute to another? Like, I've talked about it with Lisa Miller, and she 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 elaborated on 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 an how an innate sort of capacity and an, and a, and an openness and a, and a practice towards a something higher than ourselves and a spiritual connection um, can directly influence our well-being but like I'm 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 interested in in your experience with that like is there is there a, a connection with that in your in your in your experience yeah well I have a lot to say on that um, and I think my ideas on this continue continue to evolve you know at the end of the day i just think people want to feel better and they want to be happy and they don't want to hurt anymore and they don't want to suffer and and i and so people are trying to figure this out and of course um going to your doctor is a great place to go if if you're hurting and if you feel sick, if you feel unwell. And the beautiful thing about modern medicine is that, is that we are a data-driven, evidence-based uh, practice to help treat disease, right? And, and, and so that's beautiful. Like, and, and I, I, you know, with COVID and, um, you know, modern medicine and what you read on the internet, I think there is this suspicion around modern medicine or people are, people are looking for something more and seem to implicate medicine as being, uh, you know, coming up short. I think medicine is a really important method and the way we do medicine, like we do the best we can running randomized controlled studies to figure out if this pill will make you live longer or lose weight or lower your sugar or lower your cholesterol or your blood pressure, or if this, you know, infusion will make the cancer tumors smaller and if you will live longer. I mean, that's really important, right? I mean, I think, you know, we in this postmodern kind of skeptical age, we have, uh, we tend to be skeptical of so much, but, you know, in my lifetime, in my lifetime, in my own practice of medicine, we have fixed a lot of diseases that really would kill people not that long ago. You know, take your pick, uh, melanoma, HIV, 
uh, many leukemias, hepatitis C. I mean, this is really amazing. So, uh, so, you know, as a, as a physician and a professor and a medical educator and a pastor, you know, I, I really believe that I, I walk both sides of the aisle and, 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 in these sorts of conversations, I, I try to be somewhat of an apologist for what medicine does. Medicine does medicine. Now, back in the day, oh goodness gracious, this might have been almost 28, 27 years ago, I was a medical student and I was the minister of a church in a, in a rough and tumble part of New Haven. And this church is a beautiful church and years late Pilgrim Congregational Church. This place is beautiful. And I and they um, had me as their pastor and I was a medical student. They were so patient, so loving to, towards me and they formed me into being a, a pastor. And, um, and I would write sermons when I was on the hospital floors and I would oh. sit in the nurse's station. Back then we didn't have electronic medical records. Uh, we would write them on paper. So I would use hospital note paper and write my sermon and I would sit in the nurse's station so I could you know kind of listen and learn and hear what was going on and my supervising doctor said uh, that my attending physician who was a hard you know hardcore scientist came up to me asked me what I was doing and and I said oh, I'm working on my sermon he said you know physicians are the priests of today and he said this in kind of a you know kind of to nudge me or jab me. He said, people go to their physicians the way they used to go to their priest. Mm. And I think he kind of said it, you know, to be a little witty, a little sardonic and stuff. And I actually was a little offended by that. And obviously, since I'm telling you the story and it's been more than 26, seven years, 25 years, it really impacted me, that statement. But, you know, I think he's right. And in many respects, you know, we live in a world that is suspicious of organized religion. Um, I think, but people are still hurting and they go to their physician. People are skeptical of organized medicine, right? The, medicine, the medical industry, There's, people are skeptical. So I wonder if people go to their physician because they're hurting and they want to feel better and then, and then feel like that, the, that physician didn't address their needs because medicine is not the solution to that spiritual pain or that suffering or that doubt or that anxiety. And, and it's important to go to your physician because maybe there is something wrong medically, but I do think it's a lot to ask a physician mm. who went to medical school to, to you know, solve people's spiritual suffering because we, we're really bad at that. You know, the best we do is we prescribe Prozac and then refer people to counseling. And maybe that's not a bad thing, right? Maybe that's really part of getting better, right? Like the, the medical model can help a lot, but it clearly is not, it's not enough. And maybe we've become as a, as a, as you know, this postmodern human community, we've become so reductionist in our approach and we split ourselves into a, into pieces. You know, we talk about spirituality and meditation, and then we talk about pain and blood pressure and and why are we splitting that 
up when they, they're clearly so connected. So medicine does great stuff, right? It helps people live longer and we know that, but it's, it's limited. But some of the limitation is where we are in, in society, in our own individual insights. And, you know, so this gets back to, well, what about all that religion and spirituality stuff? You know, Maxie, you were sharing that you have your meditation practice and, and I have mine. And, and I know there's a lot of rich and beautiful research around meditation, loving kindness meditation, body scans. Um, and that's super important. Um, you know, there's, there are a lot of apps for meditation and <laughs> such. And, but I, I have to put out there, I think many millions of people have downloaded those meditation apps and then with the very best intentions, we intend to use them, but then we don't use them 90% of the time. And so we've, you know, we've fractured ourselves. We have aspirations that we should do this thing that it's hard to do, meditate. It's hard for many to do. Um, and so I think, you know, we as humans, need to recognize the limits of medicine and then adopt actual practices, things to do um, that could help us feel better. And this is gets you asked that question before about like spirituality and religion and such. Um, you know, we're very skeptical about we meaning I, I'm going to say the West, I'll say New England, I'll say, you know, academic circles are very suspicious of religion and and we love to criticize religion because, um, you know, there's there are many things that are very very valid to criticize, right? And everything from, you know, recent abuses in the church, and you know, some you know being closed-minded to different groups, um, LGBTQ, uh, women in ministry, and all all this kind of stuff. That many times churches, organized religion, have been slow uh, to, to catch up in some ways, but not all religion. So I think progressive Christianity has been on the right side of history on almost everything, right? Progressive Christianity was on the right side of, of abolition. You know, a lot of the abolition movement in the 19th century America was driven by progressive Christians, women's suffrage, uh, progressive Christianity, civil rights movement uh, was you know, Christians, progressive Christians, um, same gendered marriage, progressive Christians, um, took a hard stand on that early on. Um, and so, uh, so not all organized religion has been, um, you know, uh, uh, judgmental, I guess, or closed minded. And so this leads me to this piece that over the years, I've I've been very thoughtful about because I, I love mindfulness and, and, and connected to, you know, the spiritual life. And, but the, the tough part with that is it tends to be somewhat individualistic, right? It's one person mm. plugging earphones into an app or reading a book about mindfulness and kind of trying it out, um, listening to your podcast, right? And, and it's sort of like 
when you go to the gym and you see someone with super big muscles and you think, oh, I should really do what that person's doing. And then, you know, it's hard to do and then you kind of don't do it and, you know, it's hard. So, so this is one piece that I've discovered, I guess rediscovered, um, is, is actually organized religion. <laughs> now hear me out for a second, because I know maybe folks on, who listen to your podcast, looking at the other folks who, uh, you know, that you've had speak, maybe we're not so, you know, into organized religion, but just let me just put something out there. Um, so, and, and, and again, this is 30 years as being a minister, okay? And, and 30 years of, of being a minister and a physician and an academic and an educator and moving in very like liberal progressive circles. And, um, but one thing, and, and then it was my own kind of inner journey, my own spiritual journey, right? And actually it was Pilgrim Church. Uh, uh, so Pilgrim Congregational Church is a, this beautiful small church, a small congregation, beautiful old white steeple congregation uh, in, in kind of a working class neighborhood. So it's not, it's, it's, a. it wouldn't be the church that you would go to on the town green, say, or the university mm-hmm. chapel. It's not that. And they took me on when they were looking for a pastor when I was a divinity school student. And, um, and I loved it. And it was how I found the ministry. I, you know, really fell in love with the ministry. And then after, and I was there as a medical student. So I was a medical student and I was their minister. And then after medical school, I went overseas and I worked in mission hospitals for a year before coming back to to Yale for residency. So I did residency and by that time they had another pastor. And so I served other churches for a long, long time. And then maybe 10 years ago, they they needed help. And by that time I was had two married, two kids, and it was hard to be even a part-time pastor with all that was going on with life. But I could preach a little bit. Um, and so I was preaching once a month or so and helping out and then other, you know, the other folks kind of moved on. And so now I'm really their main pastor for preaching and worship. So this place, this, this, this beautiful church and these beautiful, beautiful people kind of welcomed me, welcomed me back. Um, uh, and I realized I would show up in this place and I would just get happy, whatever Mm. happened. I would just get happier. I didn't have to think it. I didn't have to meditate. I didn't have to do anything. I just had to show up and sit there. And I'm the minister, right? So I'm thinking, wow, this is kind of funny. Like I show up here and I'm like, this is, wow, I just feel happy, you know? Um, I say we have the greatest coffee hour in all of Christendom. You should come for happy hour. It's really fun. Anyway, (laughs) but I was there and I was thinking, you know, church or and and i'm just speaking as a progressive christian pastor okay this is my own experience i was like you know this is the most artistic thing that i do in the week and i try to play a little guitar and i try to draw a little bit but i sing you go to church you sing it is the most artistic thing i think that people do and I know meditation, they talk about breath work and stuff. But you know what? If you sing, you're doing breath work, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and, and so it's the most artistic thing that I do. I also think attending religious services might be the most 
um, intellectual thing that people do. And quite likely, the most intellectual thing that people do, even if they have an intellectual job. Because someone stands up there, a heartfelt, thoughtful person is going to give a sermon, usually, right, most of the time. And, and this is across religious traditions, right? So someone's going to give a thoughtful interpretation, usually with three points in a poem or a funny story or whatever, something thoughtful, provocative, based on scripture. And, and so those ideas might be the most intellectual thing, the, 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 the most challenging thought um, of the whole week, right? Because otherwise we read People Magazine and the newspaper and we hang out with people who are like us and all that. So it's the most artistic, most intellectual thing. We connect with people different from ourselves. You know, boy, the, the, the language of, around social networks and loneliness you know, like loneliness, the mortality of people who are lonely is so high. Yeah. Well, you can't be lonely if you show up at a small congregation because everyone knows when you're there and knows when you're not there. And it's intergenerational. And many times it's interracial. So here's this, we're, we're trying to find a, a solution to the anxiety of the world and 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 how to address, you know, disparities across race and eth ethnicity and um, and you know social class well church you know can do that now not all churches right not, not I get I totally understand when people say hey wait a minute Ben what about X Y and Z and that's true it's absolutely true I can you know of, of course but the critique of that belies the truth that there are these communities that are enriching and beautiful and supportive. So, and then it connects people to God, right? Like at the end of the day, the idea of, of, you know, at the end of the day, it does connect people to the divine, to the transcendent, to Jesus, to God, to the higher power, you know, describe it however you want. But something happens there when you attend religious services. Now, it's not either or, right? It's not like, oh, there's the meditators and the mindfulness people, and then there's like the church people. Obviously, no, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense at all that you would split that. It's sort of like going to the gym, right? We go to the gym to exercise our body, and we go to this place, a church, a synagogue, a mosque, or whatever, and we exercise our spirit. Um, and it doesn't mean we don't go jogging alone or hiking or lift weights alone or whatever. I mean, we do that stuff. Um, but there's a reason why I think these rich traditions have lasted thousands of years and that preceded the data. So I think a lot of these things are, are, are on to, they're onto something. Can I tell one more story that has yeah. deeply moved me? So as I mentioned, uh, Maxi, I'm, I've, I'm, I've been in the United Kingdom on a triennial leave. So I, I get uh, time away from my regular job uh, to, to you know, do academic work and all this stuff. So I, I've been at Cambridge University in, you know, in England at the Faraday Institute of Science and, Re and Religion. 
It's a beautiful place, wonderful folks. And I'm, and I'm actually here at St. Andrews University where there's some wonderful stuff around science engaged theology. Wonderful. And everyone's been so kind in all of this. Now, the thing about Cambridge is they have these, they have these colleges, right? Like Queens College, King's College, Clare College, you know, all these colleges. Um, and many of them have their own chapel. Now, I had an ID that got me into like a few of the libraries, just two of the libraries, my ID worked, but not all of them. And I thought, but, but in the evening, many of these colleges have Evensong, which is the Anglican evening prayer practice. And, and so, you know, I come to the UK as a Yale professor, right? Dun, da, da. And I'm coming here to hang out with all these like super smart academic people for this academic stuff. And, you know, I got a list of my, my to-do list of all this academic work and papers in the book and I'm writing and all this stuff. And I thought, you know what? I want to check out these colleges because they're all super historical and old and, you know, beautiful, but you can't get in them. Um, but Evensong, the worship services are open to everybody. So on the first day, I thought, you know what? I'm going to go to Evensong because it's just a great way to get into these colleges. <laughs> you know, I'll just tip so I can see. You know, I can just check out all the, you know, the courtyard and take some selfies and stuff and do a little like tourism of this historic place. But then, an Anglo, you know, the Anglican tradition or in America, the Episcopal Church, or, you know, that's not my tradition. And the Anglican Evensong, this evening prayer service, is is beautiful and i was transported by these experiences uh, i was moved to tears uh by it all and and you know you sit in these dark chapels that were all built in the 1500s some of them earlier and and you sit and you face each other that's the old monastic way you face each other so you're not mm. confused alone you're like facing each other and the choir marches in, and you honestly don't have to do much. You maybe say some of the old historic prayers. You sing one hymn, but then mostly you just listen. And and I and sit there. Like you don't have you can sit there, and you know like you know how you, you mentioned like you, you you meditate. You know when you sit down and meditate and you have like monkey brain and it's like. So of course you sit there and you're like, get monkey brain. But then you watch the stained glass windows that are filled with light and then it gets, you know, opaque and then dark. And then the, the candles, it is so effortless to be transported into this deep spiritual space. Um, something happened to me personally in those moments. And so then I would go to Evensong all the time. And I came to St. Andrews and I looked up all the Evensongs and Complins and all this. And so, you know, I would invite um, skeptics around organized religion because many, many, many people are. And especially younger folks. You mentioned your age and you're in that generation that's very skeptical for good reason, right? I totally get it for good reason. But I would invite people to at least consider, you know, these moments that are powerful, 
that are artistic, that connect people across differences, that are intergenerational and interracial and cross social class, are, are creative, artistic, and that do many, like the things that we try to do when we're trying to do mindfulness or meditation or spirituality, these are spiritual experiences. Um, anyway, so that's been my latest insight, you know, this sort of renewed um, joy around organized worship. Um, in, the, in, my, in the Protestant Christian tradition, you go to a service, a Sunday morning service, and a lot of it's driven by the preacher. Oh, that sermon was long, or that sermon was great, or boy, he was a little off today, or whatever, right? It's driven by the personality and the quality of the choir or whatever, right? Like this sort of commodity of, of church, right? Oh, I didn't get much out of it. You know, these ancient liturgical practices, there is no personality. You show up, you sit there. The, the priest opens the book, reads the prayers, you do it together. It's not about a performance. It's, it's, it's about showing up. And, you know, when we go to the gym and we, th at, we walk out of the gym and we're sort of tired and we're loose and we think, oh, that was great. I got to go to the gym more. And I kind of walked out of Evensong. And every time I walk out of my church, you know, Pilgrim Church, every time I walk out, I think, wow, that was great. I got to do that again. <laughs> mm -hmm. Anyway, so I, I know I, I just went off and off and off on, you know, on, on this, you know, a little bit of an apology for medicine and, and a little bit of an apologist uh, stance on organized religion. And it's not to say I'm not um, into meditation and spirituality and, and that kind of non-sectarian you know, non stuff. But I just have to invite people to consider these moments because they're just so beautiful and they've been around for thousands of years. There's something going on there that really is <laughs> ineffable and mysterious and transcendent. All right, I'll stop there. Um, uh, beautiful. Yeah. No, thank you so much. This is the space for it. Like, there, like I told you, there is no agenda. There's not, not, not something we have to tick off here. And like, it's just beautiful to witness um, where where you where you take something and wh what's what's alive within you you know that's that's and that's beautiful and yeah uh, you know i feel like when you are talking about my generation the pendulum is just very sensitive and it's going from one extreme to the another like there is no there's barely any sort of like mid-ground where the where we sort of like where we just like rest it either is like yeah on one side or the other and i i also this is also what we're trying to do here as a common effort is to bring the pendulum a little bit back to the middle back to the center um and to invite people because <laughs> i was i was shouting from the rooftops that organized religion is the downfall of 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 our generation you know we 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 have to disassociate from it and you know it brought so much you know so much pain to and all that but that's coming from somebody who never actually consciously um participated in a service and until i did and until i just proactively just whenever i'm in a new city and and, and germany is full of it you know beautiful churches oh my god like they're just like yeah. gorgeous italy 
Spain, the cathedrals, oh my God, France, you know, it's all so close by. So there's the density of history and, and richness in, in, in devoted um, spirituality is, is so dense. Um, the air that you breathe in those environments is so rich of, of, of that spirit that you just, I don't know, like I, I, w I just, I will, no matter in which city I'm, I'm now sort of traveling to, I will always try to make time to visit those, those places to just see for myself, investigate for myself. And I bring all of me into those spaces as well, right? So all of my Eastern practices, I bring them there. And when I'm looking at the, when I'm looking at, at you know, like uh, I just had very deep moments in Munich in, in, in a Catholic church where there was a different altar for, for um, Holy Mary and then there was one for Jesus, like a side altar where you can just like pray in, in complete sort of solitude. And it was oh, so like a beautiful secluded sort of area. And when I'm looking at these big paintings as well, you know, I'm, I'm seeing, I'm seeing, I'm seeing... I'm seeing just God, you know, I'm seeing, I'm seeing unity. I'm seeing just people suffering um, because they're like attached to, to the mind and to certain, to certain things. But then there is, you know, the, the higher connection to something higher than themselves. Um, and it, and, and it, and it puts you, it puts your own struggles into perspective. And that's what I'm seeing now in those paintings. And that doesn't have anything to do with the actual story, you know, you know, John said this and this, and Matthew said this and this, and he wore this and this, and he drank wine, but he, it's not about that. It's more like, what, what do I bring now to these environments? And so when I'm hearing people talk about that, I'm like always like, okay, what is your actual experience? Like, have you read about it in your cocon on a laptop sitting in a, I don't know, or reading something in a newspaper or something, or have you actually gone and just experienced it yourself. And I'm also trying to invite people in because like I said, we don't need more separation, you know? There's so many people who do that, so many institutions who do that. Um, and I wanted to get back to one thing you said um, in the beginning of, of, that, um, of, of, of your answer. And that was when you talked about physicians and the, what kind of like, the, the, the demand that we <laughs> that we come to a doctor's office with like we we ask for a lot I, I i get that and it's impossible to to meet to meet someone and address someone's well-being in a holistic way uh within 10 minutes or 15 minutes or 20 minutes that you know m most patients get in a, in, a, in, a, in a practice and so i i i i that was a very beautiful insight that you delivered. And now I would just ask you a follow-up question. Like, doesn't that then imply a certain, like with that power that we give physicians or like sometimes they're not even aware of it, but we see it play out because people have this urge. They're like, oh my God, like I'm, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm suffering. Does that then come with a sort of responsibility for at least to, I don't know, educate our physicians in 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 the in the basically in areas where their own expertise ends and where then other people other disciplines may come in you know and do we have to establish more bridges for them to then say well 
certainly I cannot help you, but I know someone who does, or I know an institution who does. Because yeah. that's like something that was coming up for me, and I wanted oh, to yeah. uh, and talk a little a bit very, about that. That's very complicated, actually. So suppose you came to your physician and you said, you know, I'm really tired and I don't feel, I, I've lost focus and I'm eating too much, I'm gaining weight. And if that physician said, huh, I think you need to become more spiritual, right? That discounts those very real symptoms. And I think in medicine, and so it's, it's, it's like bi-directional, right? Like it is, it's, it's what the patient is bringing to the relation as much as what the physician is bringing to the relationship, right? And so it's easy to say, gosh, doctor, I feel tired and I'm gaining weight and I think it's my thyroid, check my thyroid. And the physician will say, of course, let's check your thyroid, right? And, and so then, or, and then the thyroid test is normal. Well, you know, I have joint pain and I, you know, so then we do blood tests for, uh, uh, you know, rheumatoid arthritis. You know, in the Middle Ages, they would they would they would let blood. You know, we would do we would practice bloodletting because we thought it would recalibrate our humors and bring our body back into balance. <laughs> and it always occurs to me we still are practicing bloodletting, right? Because it acknowledges the suffering and the story of the patient. So. I think the only time physicians can really, you know, suggest, um, I guess, complementary medicine or spiritual life or religious life is with there's trust. And if, and if we've done everything that modern medicine does, because I think patients, you know, as a patient, we want an answer and, in this modern world, we want a fix it type solution, right? Like we want to take a medicine to lose weight. We want to take a medicine to be happier because some of these other practices are hard. And, and, and like, like building, That's the truth. building social connection, eating less food, that's you know, it. all these things are so hard. And wouldn't it be great if we took a pill to solve these problems? Um, and medicine is good at that, right? We love our pills. We love our potions and our tests. Um, but, you know, we live in a world where, what, a quarter of people, maybe more, have some kind of a mental health challenge, depression, anxiety, bipolar, OCD, eating disorders, more, at least a quarter. So I think modern medicine helps a lot. It can do a lot. Um, but in that same breath, we have to recognize that, that there are other things to do. And I was sort of thoughtful about um, one of my coolest Renaissance conversation was with a gardener. There's a gardener mm. at Yale who does, who collaborates with labs and tries to identify molecules in plants that could have, you know, healing properties. And so, and so the example is, you know, take kale, right? Like the leafy vegetable kale. And that maybe there's a molecule in kale that could, that could prevent cancer. 
And if we took that molecule and, and, or we smashed up kale and put some juices in kale and turned kale into a capsule, a supplement, right? If we like melatonin is a supplement. So we would, it would be a supplement and we could buy it in a health food store. But if we ground up that kale even further and we did a randomized controlled trial and we turned it into a, we put it in a bottle and then had a label on it and some fancy drug name and <laughs> it could be sold as a drug, right? If it was FDA approved, it could be sold as a drug to prevent cancer, right? But, but maybe the answer is not to be so reductionist to say that it's that one molecule of kale. Maybe the answer is we should just eat more kale, you know? And there's a and there's data behind that, but so we've turned, you know, a plant-based lifestyle, and we're trying to turn it into, like, a medical intervention, you know. And there's probably some importance to that, and the research behind it is really important. But it does make me wonder, like, are we trying to reduce the complexity of our body and turn our, the solution into a pill? Because um, clearly, mm. we need more. Than that because what we're doing now uh, doesn't seem to be working so well when a quarter of people are struggling so much uh, and 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 the struggles are complicated right it's family stuff it's relationships it's medical stuff it's you know the neighborhoods that people live in um, it's you know there's injustices in the world that great parts of our society are struggling with um, anyway so the solution can never only be a pill, even though a pill can help a lot. I researched a a quote of you and um, or like just basically in the preparation for the podcast, a quote stood out and it's exactly about that. And it's oh, it's it, it was beautiful to to hear you say that. So basically it goes, it's easy to prescribe a pill, pick it up from the pharmacy and, you know, find something that matches your apparent you know, disease and whatever it is, is it, you know, the doctor finds. But it's hard for people to believe that the medicine is actually good for them. So the belief from the patient in the medicine that they're like consuming is a completely different cup of tea than prescribing a pill and just inserting it into the, into the system. I love that. Boy, you, you quoted me back to myself. So I'm like so flattered and honored. <laughs> I think that came from an essay. Um, so it came from an essay that was published a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago. But it, and they changed the title. The t original title of that essay, I wanted it to be Medicine is Easy and Everything Else is Hard. <laughs> <laughs> because... And and if there's any resident or medical student that's going to be listening to this podcast uh, that that I personally you know have the pleasure of working with, um, they're going to roll their eyes because I say that about ten times a day. The medicine is easy and everything else is hard. So you know I, I take care of a lot of folks uh, with HIV, and in my lifetime, you know when I started, people were dying of HIV, um, a lot of people. 
and that there would be an HIV ward in the hospital. And so in my lifetime, I watched people, I watched the technology change so that there were really powerful medicines that, that could help people live longer. Uh, but there were a lot of side effects, right? But so you stuck it out, right? You weren't feeling great, but you were alive, right? So, and now, and then, and then there was one pill once a day. And there were some side effects, but, but they were more tolerable. One pill once a day, they were a little more tolerable. Back in the day, it would be like fistful of pills. Now, it's one pill once a day. The pill isn't that big, and there aren't that many side effects. Uh, and so the medicine is easy. It is easy to prescribe one pill once a day and it will fix your HIV. I mean, it, will, it won't cure it, but it's a, it will suppress the virus and people will, can live, you know. In fact, now people with HIV, we, get, uh, we try to be extra vigilant with coronary artery disease and cancer screening because there's a higher risk of, of those things, uh, you know, chronic inflammation and such. Um, but, you know, 20 years ago, we weren't thinking about chronic conditions like that because people with HIV tended to just die. But now we have to worry about cancer screening and heart attack prevention, all that stuff. So that happened in my lifetime, in your lifetime that happened. So the medicine is easy. It's very easy to prescribe one pill once a day, but exactly what you said, <laughs> You're quoting yourself back, quoting me back. But exactly you said, you're so right. You know, a person with HIV has to believe that the medicine works. A person with HIV has to, you know, have mental health intact enough to not be so depressed and self-esteem has to be, you know, good enough to, to believe that they deserve the medicine. And then the other more complicated stuff like transportation to doctor's offices, doctor, insurance has to pay for it, you know. Uh, access to care, the relationship with the 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 provider has to be intact. So you know, prescribing one pill once a day is the easy part of medicine. There's a lot of stuff around that 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 that's inside the patient, but also the system of of life. You know, the system of the medical complex has to be intact to help take care of that patient, and that's really complicated. Hmm. Yeah, and it doesn't make it any easier for physicians. Like I get that. Like it's it's a huge, you know. It's th these are like completely different disciplines, um, which we then demand to one for, for one for one individual to fulfill, and it takes a lifetime to master, or if it's ever possible, even one discipline of you know addressing only the body. And you know, I'm I, I, I'm t I just yesterday talked to a somatic therapist. So it's all about understanding the deep um, complexity just within the vessel of, of, of the human body on the intersection of, you know, um, also emotionally stored tr trauma in the, in the immediate sort of tissue of the body and how we can release that somatically. And that's just, you know, that's just a fracture of, of one discipline and he spent a lifetime developing and cultivating his skills within this area. And so like, I, I, I think, yeah, we have to, like there's a German, we, we have a saying, we have to break a 
break a stick for physicians or like for for doctors um which means like we have to you know sort of like yeah you put things in perspective um and and this is really something that i get from hearing you speak is i i don't have that sensitivity sometimes i'm just looking at what's going on and how they treat my for example my parents or my grandparents when they go to the hospital or something and i'm just like i'm you know it's quick to judge and to basically also judge in my case the german healthcare system and how it's organized and all of that but yeah i, I like this conversation really helps me to yeah understand the nuances and the mechanics behind this like it's not it's very easy to point fingers but it's you know it's it's deeper than that so i i appreciate that i very much appreciate it. it's definitely widening widening my horizon right now <laughs> oh well you're so kind um you know the other thing that i've been interested in for much of my career was around burnout uh burnout uh and then which has evolved into questions around human flourishing um so the, you're getting that idea of like breaking the stick or the physicians breaking the yeah. stick. And, and, you know, as a, as a, my, my role at Yale is to be a residency program director. And then I, um, the medical director of a primary care practice and there's a, a program for medicine, spirituality, and religion that I run. So those are like my three hats at Yale. And, um, and so early on when I joined the faculty, um, I became very concerned about burnout uh, and boy, you hear that word burnout and it's, you know, it, it, it's like a neon flashing light. You know, there's this pejorative load around burnout. Right. And, um, but the data is not good for physician burnout. Um, right. And so it's about half and maybe it goes up and down a little bit over the years. It was a little worse during COVID. Actually COVID was interesting for a while physicians, we had, we were very steeled to the task and there was like a lift of cord esprit and then it, it wore on. Everything seemed to crump a little bit, but basically for the past 20 years, physician, about half of physicians are burned out. And, and there's a specific criteria of emotional exhaustion and depersonalization and lack of accomplishment. So there's like a specific de definition. Um, and so the f we know a lot about burnout, uh, physician burnout, and it, uh, so it, you know, burned out physicians tend to make mistakes. Uh, they tend to leave their job. It, it, it has, uh, impacts the institution because they might discharge people too early. Um, there's lower patient satisfaction scores. Um, the medical error piece is really bad. And then the phys the individual, um, you know, they tend to have worse marriages and mental health issues and, and things like that. So that, so I was studying that and I wrote a bunch of papers about that. And I realized, you know, we gotta, I, I want to find people who are happy, physicians who are happy, and then just ask them why they're happy. And so we started doing that and we did it among, uh, primary care docs and emergency department physicians. And then I had the joy of collaborating with this sociologist in Pakistan and this woman who, uh, palliative care, uh, chaplain in South Africa. So these different communities and, and we did qualitative studies. We just had open interviews, you know, just exactly what you're doing. 
I got ideas about you, Maxie. I want you to talk at Yale, actually. For I want to flip this, because um, <laughs> uh, because you, I just anyway. So I, I I'll come back to this, but anyway. So so we've interviewed. Oh, we interviewed. We 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 have we collected qualitative data on people who live in wheelchairs. You know, people with paralysis, uh, and then just a beautiful study on people who sing in choirs. Those people have figured it out. If you sing in a choir, whoo, yeah, that's they're <laughs> happy, healthy people. Anyway, so so I started interviewing people who who identify as happy, and 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 we did validated instruments, and they couldn't, and they weren't burned out, and they met, you know, through questionnaires that they were happy, and essentially. You know, it wasn't surprising. It really affirmed a lot of what we know. And there's some surprising things. So one is social connection. Physicians who were happy tended to feel really strongly about their staff and have overlapping circles of of community. So family, friends, you know, one person was really interested in, you know, one, you know uh, oh, I run, I'm in a bicycle club or a tennis club or every weekend I have a family thing, or even introverts would say, oh, I have three friends, four friends, and I'm really close to them. That was huge. Um, physicians who were happy tended to be in it for strong values. In other words, they weren't in it for the money or the prestige. They were in it because they were seeking to heal sick people, to care for sick people. Um, and I asked them about money. They, and they, one of them said, huh, money? It's, it's important, but not relevant. You know, like it was a subtle thing. Like, I know I got to think about it. I should probably think about it more, right? This doesn't even occur to them. Because a lot of times we, you know, folks go into medicine for like social prestige or money or whatever, all that stuff. Those are probably legitimate reasons. But the ones who were thriving were, uh, the ones who were thriving, were, you know, were in it for these value-based reasons. Physicians tended to have some autonomy over their practice. So they did lots of things. Um, but they had some control of their work schedule, work environment. Uh, and so about, so they didn't have great work-life balance because they loved what they did, right? So, you know, why would you, why, I, I don't even like that word work-life balance because it implies that your life starts when your work ends, but wouldn't it be nice <laughs> if like what you what you did was a joyful, meaningful, enriching experience that you would want to do that, you know? So they tended to have autonomy and then they, they genuinely enjoyed the practice and science of medicine and they genuinely enjoyed their patients that, that they, they would describe, um, the importance of connecting with a patient. You know, the most important thing I do is I'm with a patient in the room helping them. So those were like the five things. So social connection, value-based care, autonomy, um, uh, uh, the love of medicine and the and the love of patients; those five things, and we've done we've interviewed, you know, more than um, about two hundred people now. And the non physicians, it basically maps to their own piece too, like love of what they they did and they had high purpose and all that. So this is a bit this is a lot of qualitative research that that shows mm. and from different pockets of people, right? People in South Africa caring for children with HIV, physicians in Pakistan, uh, uh, emergency department physicians, people who sing in choirs, 
these are stable domains across multiple um across multiple uh uh communities here so i'm very intrigued by this and 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 part of it is these projects have all come about from renaissance conversations someone comes to me and they say oh doolittle i want to you know study something i said oh, let's i'm really interested in this question of flourishing because we know what burnout looks like and we know the sequelae of burnout we know what anxiety and postmodernity and all that stuff we, we know about that but let's find people who are happy and let's talk to them uh so that's what i learned and which leads me maxi before i forget uh because if i don't say it now i i, I don't want to stop our time and then <laughs> forget wish i said this you have a lot of wisdom I looked at the list of people you've interviewed. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 22, 23. Oh, I mean, it's more than, th oh my goodness, it's a lot of people. And you just came back from this trip where you interviewed even more people that aren't even on this podcast. So yeah. you have a lot of wisdom. And I want to interview you. I think so. The program I run at Yale is one is the program on medicine, spirituality, and religion, and so I want to invite you, uh, and I want to interview you at Yale via Zoom, and we can even do it on your Riverside podcast. Um, and so we'll turn it into a podcast, but it'll be the program on medicine, spirituality, and religion. And what's neat about it is we usually get between oh twelve twenty people. And um, uh, and they're all chaplains, physicians, students, like these really cool people. They're going to want to ask you a lot of questions, but but I want to learn from you. I you you've interviewed, you've done your own qualitative study on human flourishing and sp the spiritual life. So can I right. can I ask you some of your lessons learned, or should we save it? to the program on medicine, spirituality, and religion. Well, first, let me ask you, would you want to do that? Speak at, the, at Yale? I, I, I would be honored. Oh. I would be honored. We should, Absolutely. we have to do that. I would we'll be get, delighted. We'll get on the books for that, for sure. Maybe we'll turn off the recording and we'll look at our calendars and we'll make it happen. It'll be in the spring. Yeah, but we that do that is so lovely. Like I'm, oh, I'm honored. Thank you so much. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, it'll be That's really amazing. fun. Thank That'll you. be so fun. And then I'm just going to ask you a ton of questions. <laughs> and then all your your listeners, they've gotten they've probably gotten so curious about you. Like, who's this guy? He's got a marketing job thing company, and then but he goes to Ireland and the United States to interview people. You're a pretty interesting guy, Maxie. I think I want to <laughs> learn from you. <laughs> so so you're in yeah. so we'll, we'll get on the books after this talk but can, but so then I, could mm. i ask you um so I'll, I'll talk about myself and then i'll ask you this one question so when i interview people for my residency program uh it's very competitive and we get more than 300 people every year and we just choose four right. people and it's this whole ranking thing and it's this whole thing that we all everyone gets anxious about uh, I mean, I'm not, I don't get any, I mean, it, it's, it's the students, it's very stressful and all that stuff. So I tell everybody in advance, uh, the night before the interview, we meet over zoom and I, and I tell them I'm going to, I interview everybody. I interview everybody just for 15 minutes. Um, cause we just have four interview days and we don't interview that many people. So I ask them this one question. I say, tell me what 
the one thing is. Tell me what the one thing is. It could be something on your resume. It could be something uh, that's not on your resume. It could be an experience. It could be a value. It could be a mantra. Tell me about the one thing. And um, and I tell it to him ahead of time because I don't want to surprise him and I want him to think about it. And what's so great about that is now for several years now, I have this compendium of people's one thing that they would say for their Yale interview. Uh, and it's so beautiful. And I'm grateful for that. Mm-hmm. You know, remember that Billy Crystal movie, City Slickers? Do you ever see that? It's about this like middle-aged guy and he's kind of crispy and burned out and, you know, kind of in a rut. And so he goes on this cattle drive out West in the United States and, uh, and he meets this like leathery old cowboy and he says, oh, you, you know, East coast, middle-aged, crispy, burned out guys always come out to the cattle drive to think like this is going to solve all your problems. The trick is you got to just do the one thing. And then Billy Crystal says, the one thing, tell me what the one thing is. And then the leathery cowboy says, um, oh, that's for you to figure out. And so Maxi, what is your one thing? Mm. <laughs> mm. Okay, I will go I'll go very recent, something I've recently got to learn from my teacher, my my teacher and somebody who I deeply respect and have been following for years on a daily basis and that is Michael Singer, okay? Who wrote The Untethered Soul and the Surrender Experiment. And I got to spend time with him at the Temple of the Universe in Florida. And he invited me to go on a walk with him. And I did and took a drive with him and all that. And very honored. And, you know, there would be a, there would be a lot of things I can name as the one thing. Um, or things that I could basically highlight and then make it the one thing that I could tell you. But honestly, at the very core... The one thing, my pole star, my the thing that I'm striving towards that is just the umbrella for my life, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, is gotta be the the letting go of having the one thing and replacing mm-hmm. having the one thing with becoming the vessel in this incarnation of mine for whatever needs to come through me. And I see it play out in this podcast. I see it play out in my relationships. I see it play out in my, in my work life. The less there is of me, the less there is an idea of what that one thing or one or more than one thing should be, what I should become, what I should be, what I, all of that, all of these ego ideas all of these concept views opinions wishes hopes and dreams there are the more of a hollow tomb i am for for whatever in that moment needs to come through that allows me to raise what is right in front of me 
And so everybody wants to save the world, but nobody wants to do the dishes. So oftentimes I find myself in situations where, where I'm so idealistic and I, and I want to do so many things and I want to have a great answer to this question. What is my one thing? And I want to put it on my resume. But honestly, it's about letting go of every little single thing that comes up when asking that question and replace it by, well, that one thing is what is needed in every moment that is put in front of me so I can raise it and it's being better off because it did appear in front of me. So that's where I'm trying to, and not trying, but aspiring to, to get to in my life. Um, to the best of my abilities, with all the human imperfections, with all the splinters of faults in my morality and all of that. So that's how I would answer that question. <laughs> oh, Maxi, that is a beautiful answer. Oh, I want the good folks at Yale to hear that, actually. So we're, we'll get you on. And actually, I wrote that quote, everyone wants to save the world, no one wants to do the dishes. <laughs> did you say that or did someone else say that? That's well, really Somebody good. else said it, but I, I, it just oh, stuck man. with me. I wouldn't be able beautiful. to tell you who, who, who said it first, but I... I resonate with it so much. Oh, that is, that is, that's solid gold. That's so, that's great. <laughs> and actually this idea of like being a trans, being a tube or like being transparent to God or the divine, like that's a very mystical, um, you know, take on this. Like that's like, that's really, that's so beautiful. I mean, the mystics would like, the cloud mm -hmm. of unknowing, it's sort of like really, um, so that's just beautiful yeah living um, from a place of surrender as michael Sa singer says you just surrender oh to, yeah yeah it's a constant you know, journey of surrendering so the other it's, it's so funny like save the world and put it on my resume that i i talk about that a lot um about the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues and this doesn't come from me this comes from david brooks who wrote like a book, Man's Search for Meaning, and he was quoting this rabbi, Soloveitchek, who was this uh, Jewish existentialist. And we talked about how there's Adam 1 and Adam 2, and Adam 1 wants to subdue the world, and Adam 2 wants to cultivate the world, and it comes from the Garden of Eden, you know? And, and Soloveitchek, you know, talks about, basically, David Brooks talks about eulogy virtues and resume virtues. And so resume virtues are what goes on your resume and eulogy virtues are what people say at your eulogy, right? And that um, we live in a world that, especially in medicine, especially at a place like Yale, right? That we tend to overemphasize the resume virtues, where you went to school, your academic rank, which is why I love you didn't ask about any of that stuff. You just said, what do you do in the morning? I just love that. Um, you know, your publications, right, and academics. And so we tend to overweight the, the resume virtues and we barely speak about the eulogy virtues, kindness, love, curiosity, um, friendship. Um, but at the end of the day, no one at your eulogy is going to say, Doolittle had X number of publications or Maxie's podcast had X number of viewers. No, he was a good dad, a good husband, mm. a good you know, he was a good friend to me. And I wonder if, um, I wonder if, uh, um, 
if 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 we need to uh, change the conversation a bit and emphasize the importance of eulogy virtues, uh, especially in medicine, especially in leadership, uh, leadership not just in medicine but everywhere, uh, because I think people who who strive for virtue, for love, to seek the good, to seek the good, because, you know, the skeptics will say, well, what do you mean by the good? Like, but um, I have thoughts on that, actually. So I, I, I'm trying to do that in my little corner of the world to find people who um, see the vision and importance of, of eulogy virtues. Um, it seems to be working out. The, I'm grateful that in the small corner, the residency program that I am so grateful to run, uh, there's the most beautiful, thoughtful, compassionate, hardworking people I've ever met are the people uh, in, in the Yale Med Peds program. I, you know, I'm so grateful for them. And they've taught me a lot. And But we've tried to bring them to Yale because there's the resume virtues, which they have, but also uh, they have the, the eulogy virtues that, uh, that we, 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 we seek to model, yeah, which leads me to my ne my newest idea. Actually, uh, you'll, you'll be the first to hear this. Actually, I pitched right. it at a Renaissance conversation yesterday. So, but this is still ill formed. Uh, but here's my latest idea, and and so the research on burnout has led to research on human flourishing. You know, so if burnout is the disease. What does well-being look like? So there's that's I've been doing that for the past couple of years. Now I'm very interested in our shared virtues, our shared values, because I think we live in a world that is has more conflict than at least I can remember in my lifetime. I think in America, maybe the Cold War, Vietnam War civil rights issue. Maybe there's always been conflict, but it just seems like in the past, I don't know, 15, 20 years in my adulthood, I guess, there's just been more conflict, uh, racial conflict, political conflict. Um, and I'm curious to explore, are there common virtues that we all share that could bring us together potentially? Or are we just hopelessly disconnected and disenfranchised from each other? So, so that's, I have this idea and I, I don't know how to explore it except maybe through qualitative studies. I love these conversations. But the tough thing about a qualitative study is, um, is that people probably say the right answers, the, thing, the things that they think people want to hear. Um, I've tried to be really authentic in my answers um, and to, you know, recognizing that not everyone's going to love what I say, and, but I've tried to be authentic. But I'm curious about um, if I could get, if we could get the unfettered, unfiltered, private view of people people's ideas around love, forgiveness, truth, 
God and the higher power. And, and so I'm curious about that. So I, I want mm. to, I want to study that probably through anonymous QR codes that people might not even respond to ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, but some people might, and, and maybe it should be web-based. I don't know, but I, I want it to be like very organic, like in the supermarket, a QR code or in right. the public library or in a signpost when you're walking down the street and people might say, Oh, what's that QR code? What is love? What's that QR code? And they do the QR code and then they get, put it in there. Um, so I want it to be like a sponge of common wisdom, I guess, to really try to get at what people are thinking. Um, it's funny because like I'm on the I'm a professor at Yale and I've been at these really amazing institutions for the past six weeks, Cambridge, uh, you know, University of Cambridge and University of St. Andrews. I mean, these are and Yale, of course, too, is these are world class institutions with smart people all over the place. And it's funny as I wrap up my six weeks here, uh, I've enjoyed so much. I mean, they're so kind and so friendly. But now I want more. I want wisdom from people walking down the street and what they think about love and forgiveness and truth and beauty and God. So that's my latest, I, that's my latest project. I, I want, I, and maybe that's not the right method, right? But I, I'm very interested in the core values that bring us together. Do we agree? Are there things we can agree about or are we just hopelessly um, disconnected from one another. I, I'd like to believe that there are common things that can bring us together. Uh, and, and I'm interested in exploring that. Absolutely. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. And I can just, you know, I, I can, yeah, I feel like the, the setup of like you, you're on the, oh, you're, you're on the right path. Um, with um, carefully sort of selecting the setup of conduct how to conduct these these what what is the container in which this this research research is basically being placed in because all the work that I've been doing with myself and with others in in in, in especially in group settings um, for you know deep truths to come out especially when it when you know and this is what what i'm getting from you what you what you want you know you want for for authenticity for for like an unfiltered light to shine through you the container in which that happens needs to be safe you know people need to feel need to feel safe and so how can we facilitate that so form follows function right um how can we yeah where can we you know and there will be even and even then calculate sort of like a distortion of that of that uh modality we have to yeah somewhat take that into account because i don't think there will be any sort of way we can you know uh because no matter how you facilitate anything it'll always have somewhat of a of a of a flavor to it but i i guess it's just like to <laughs> to make it in to, to come up with a way that is inviting people to share let's say a large majority of of their authentic self and for them to feel safe you know um to to answer those questions to the best of their like current situation and ability 
because you know as mike posner also said a musician that i oh so much admire you know like you and he says it about musicians or artists but it goes really for anyone you know your music or your artist only can only be as deep as you are as a person and i so much resonate with that and so no matter what you do in your in, in this lifetime it can just always be uh, a reflection of where you are in your personal journey right and go as deep as you are on within this human experience in this incarnation and so i guess it's just like okay how can we facilitate a survey that allows people to bring all there is you know all of you is welcome in this there is no right and wrong there is no nothing to achieve um and to bring to bear where they are at right now what they see what they think and feel authentically about love about you know purpose about the one thing whatever you want to ask them so um oh that's a great question i should probably ask that <laughs> that's a great idea yeah. So that musician, how do you, it's Michael Posen, you said? No, my, Mike Posner. Mike. Oh, Mike Posner. M-I-K-E and then Posner. P-O-S-N-E-R. Oh, got it. Okay. Good. I'll look yeah, he into turned, he, he, he went from pop star to like a whole different like wisdom keeper. He, he's, he, he climbed, he summited Mount Everest. He walked across America. He does like all crazy sort of things right now and studied with Wim Hof breathwork intensely and he's he's a spiritual man right now like he he grew into that and turned wow. turned his back to to the facade of what is Hollywood and 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 and, and the the modern pop world yeah I, I very much like him Maxi um, I am due to, to yeah you, go you to a go Renaissance to conversation so <laughs> I am so very very grateful uh, for this chance to have this beautiful, rich conversation. I, I mean, it's just been a joy to, to meet you. Um, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so grateful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.